0: All right, well, we're continuing on in the text, uh, the story of Christ, his teaching, and uh, so we're in Matthew 18, and uh, hopefully we'll get to verse 9 today. Uh, there are a number of, of issues uh, that Jesus uh, presses upon his disciples in his teaching, a, uh, an occasion that they brought on themselves, so they were kind of asking for it. If you've read the text or the other accounts of it, um, the guys weren't exactly mature. And they oftentimes come across as teenage boys uh, and the same kind of aspirations and things. And uh, so Jesus uses that mentality, that behavior as an opportunity to teach and to grow them. And, um, and then when I'm done studying all this, I realize that um, men are just like that. In, into their 80s. So, uh, <laughs> I look forward to those days. Well, I'd rather Jesus just come back and uh, cause that would be a long time, wouldn't it? For me to be 80, cause I'm so young. <laughs> so all things in the text, stop that. All things really in the text are related to the kingdom, okay? Uh, there's prerequisites for entrance, admission as it were into the kingdom qualifications for greatness into the kingdom and then and the holiness of its citizens. And uh, so let's look at it. Please stand uh, for the reading of God's word. I have to admit this is just reading the scriptures to the congregation is one of my favorite things. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little Child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you that it seems like nobody else, Jesus, brings just the truth. And we have many thoughts and ideas about many things. And Lord, we need you to bring truth to us, to bring perspective. And so I pray that um, the lessons here, the teaching, Lord, will come across clear to us. And Lord, that we would grow uh, toward your intent and that you'd be glorified. So thank you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, go ahead and be seated. Return to verse 1 with me. So I guess... It kind of is hard to imagine a bunch of grown men having this discussion. But it says, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest? Now Jesus could have just settled it and responded how? Well, have you been with me so long? (laughs) But of course it's, it's a teaching moment for Jesus that he can't pass up. Uh, Among the guys, there's this character flaw that needs corrected uh, before he can essentially make these men ambassadors, Where he commissions them uh, as ambassadors, his representatives to the world. But why the question? (laughs) Now, it probably has come up because of late, Peter has gotten a lot of attention from Jesus, right? And so have uh, two of the other guys, James and John, Uh, To begin with, you know, it was upon Peter that Jesus said that he would build his church and that he would give him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So was Peter the greatest in the kingdom? Also, it was Peter, James, and John who were selected among the 12 to go with Jesus into Jairus' house when he healed his daughter. And they were also selected to go on the Mount of Transfiguration. So was it one of them Inquiring minds wanted to know. I imagine that the other disciples had asked Peter, James, and John, you know, so what, what was it that you did on the mountain? What happened? What was going on? What did the master say? What did he do? What, and, and why was it such a big deal that only three were invited? Was it a special mission? Tell us. And if the three were obedient, they had to say, we're not permitted to say. And that, what does that do to a curious mind? Yeah. And then I'm sure that the conversation turned to what made them so special. And then it morphed into a discussion about, well, who is actually the greatest in the kingdom? And then, of course, Jesus becomes the arbitrator. So who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? But I think first we, we, we need to try to understand what the men are asking exactly, what's what's in their minds? So at this time, of course, they're still thinking Davidic kingdom, okay? The the kingdom being restored to Israel, Okay, which is the issue to them. And in a kingdom, there's there's many positions, there's many roles with, with varying degrees of authority and prominence. There's, as it were, the king's cabinet, counselors and advisors to the king, there's generals, Commanders in the military, ambassadors for foreign relations, there were cupbearers. I know we always think of cupbearers as these idiots that the king selects to, to kill over when somebody tries to poison him, but actually, cupbearers were among the king's most loyal, respected, trusted men. Uh, Nehemiah, remember, was a cupbearer who uh, Artaxerxes highly respected. Okay. There were cooks, amazing enough, those over agriculture, finances, and so forth. Actually, you can read about all these guys uh, uh, in David's kingdom. So the disciples, though, they were concerned individually, not simply about position or what their role might be in the kingdom. These guys are concerned about prominence over their companions. This won't be the last time Jesus has to talk about it because, like most men, they didn't get it the first time. Okay? They'll get it again, and Jesus will make it even more appointed. But see, these guys are curious as to which one of them would be highest, greatest, and most important in Jesus's administration, who would stand out among the others and rule over them. So Jesus, you know, who among us will you select to be more important than the others? Who will be the favored one to have authority over the others? So in other words, who's going to be second in command and then course, it should be me. And then I tell everybody else what to do. People aren't like that ever. Then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them. Uh, Perhaps maybe it was a semicircle and Jesus before them and then sets this child there. I think it's interesting that Jesus was just the kind of guy that children were around and available to him to call to himself. And when he did, they would just come. Kids usually run from me. (laughs) Yeah. He says, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted, that is to be turned around and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying, forget about administration for a minute. Let's just talk about admission. You guys are way ahead of yourselves. So Jesus initially drew their attention away from job titles to talk to them about the most basic requirements for just entering the kingdom of heaven. They wanted to go straight to the top. But Jesus says, hold on, you're not even through the door yet. We call this presumption, presumption. So Jesus begins by presenting this very small child to them, saying that without first converting, without turning around and then being transformed, as it were, becoming like children, you would just be excluded from the kingdom. In the Greek language, there's actually a, a double negative there and it's like saying that they won't, no, not by any means enter the kingdom without first meeting this initial prerequisite, well less gain any prominence in it. And the sternness in Jesus' response really is a rebuke to their arrogant, self-seeking presumption. Okay? Their question should have been more along these lines you know, Lord, we're, we're not even worthy to be in your kingdom, but if you'll have us, we would be happy mucking out stalls and, and cleaning out bathrooms if we could be so presumptuous. You get it? That's the way they should have approached this. But instead, they've not only taken for granted that they'll be in the kingdom, they think they deserve the highest positions of power and authority in it. They put themselves at the head of the line, thinking themselves worthy to be over their companions. So this child in the midst, Jesus says this is where entrance into the kingdom begins. This is where it all starts. What does that mean? What does it mean to be converted and to become in this context? Uh, you know, I think th- it's the immediate and most obvious things. That are the major, it's the major contrast between the child and the disciples. They're big and strong, and the child is small and vulnerable. Which one do you want to be? Yeah. The boys think very big of themselves and the child knows himself to be of low estate. They, they fancy themselves significant. The child views himself as nonessential. They have visions of grandeur, but the child is content playing in the dirt, right? They are, the boys are proud and arrogant, presumptuous, and the child is humble, timid, and just unassuming, okay? And then some of the differences not so readily noticeable are In Jewish society, children had no position, no prominence, and no legal status at all. But these men, before the Son of God, are intoxicated with the idea of position, power, prominence, and authority. So Jesus placed the least of society among those that thought they should be the greatest and said, here's what it takes to be great, just for entrance, rather. But they thought they were something. They were high-minded. Something came to mind, uh, something that happened a few years ago with one of my kids. It was a couple years ago, maybe three years ago, I was cutting some sheet metal with a grinder. Of course, there was lots of noise, and there were lots of sparks. And I noticed that my son, Asher, who at the time was about seven, and Asher was watching with wonder in his eyes. And so I stopped and said, Asher, would you like to give it a try? And he said, Dad, I really want to, but I'm not sure I'm ready. (laughs) He wanted to. He was fascinated by it, but he was humble about it. He didn't dare presume upon it. Yeah, he was sober-minded about himself and his abilities. But these men had granted themselves rank without meeting requirements. So in some ways, many ways, they were the very opposite of the child. To better reveal the difference between them, and the attributes of a child. There's some great examples in Scripture, many. I don't have time for a lot of them. For starters, uh, the child had an insignificant view of himself. The child didn't think highly of himself. Uh, This was, in fact, what qualified King Saul in the early days of his reign over Israel. He, He thought himself initially as being the most insignificant guy that there was. But in the latter days of his reign, he thought too highly of himself. Uh, The prophet Samuel uh, later brought this to his attention, but by that time it was too late. The exchange went like this. Samuel said to King Saul, he says, when you were little... Now remember, Saul was a massive human being. He was head and shoulders taller than everybody. He says, but when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel and did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? His humility was his greatest quality. He was poor in spirit, which really was the prerequisite for his position. But over time, his position and authority went to his head, and then he became presumptuous, even to the point where he thought he could ignore the Lord's commandment and even lied to Samuel about it. He says, well, I've fulfilled the Lord's commandment. I've, I've slaughtered the Amalekites. And Samuel says, wait a second. I hear the bleating of sheep. I hear the lowing of cows. And what is he doing here? The king, Agag. It's crazy. And then Samuel rebukes Saul for his rebellion. Of course, Saul is resistant to it. And Samuel turns to leave Saul. And Saul grabs a hold of his robe and it tears. So Samuel turned to Saul and said, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you, who's greater than you. Well, who would be better than Saul? Well, apparently, for starters, someone who was little in their own eyes, who wasn't arrogant or presumptuous, but humble and unassuming. And so the anointing of God was given to a man who was after God's own heart, to David. He was a shepherd boy, the youngest in the home, a kid who had no idea at that moment what he was capable of by the Spirit of God, right? Yeah. So the disciples, for no good reason, thought themselves more important than they were, too highly of themselves, and they thought too little of their companions. And you know, this wasn't new information for these men, for Jesus had already taught them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it's the humble, the unassuming, the meek, those who are little in their own eyes, who aren't so presumptuous as to think they deserve anything good from the Lord. He says, to these belong the kingdom of heaven. Someone with a sober opinion of themselves. That qualifies them. Another example comes from Job. You know, at the beginning of the book, the Lord provides this estimation of the man. And then at the end of the book, Job provides an estimation of himself. It's interesting. Here's God's appraisal of Job. He says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. Understand, this is the Holy Spirit's evaluation of Job. How accurate is it? 100%, okay? That's what God said about him. Job, going into this tragedy, is already blameless, upright, already feared the Lord, he already shunned evil, but apparently one can have a deeper understanding of their own insignificance. After all this tragedy and heartache, toward the end, God confronted Job later in the book, and then Job, he then sees God, as it were, and then himself, in light of God's holiness, God's majesty, and out of that experience came this sobering confession from Job. He said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. The greater vision one has of God the, the greater clarity one has of himself. Now, when we're all busy comparing ourselves among ourselves, which Paul says is foolish, we don't look so bad, but when the infinite majesty and holiness of God is before us, we become really, really small. It's like when we consider the, 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 just the massiveness of the universe, and then there's us. God is infinite. We are finite. It's amazing. However small Job was in his own eyes before this moment, compared little to the microscopic view he had afterward. And it was at this point of extreme humiliation that God granted Job relief and restored his life. There's a lesson there, isn't there? Yeah. Job didn't become less. He just saw himself in truth. Little children come totally dependent. They really have nothing to offer. They're insignificant in terms of their contribution. They have no rights and they're totally at the mercy of those over them. They're like kind of like the prodigal son who came to his senses and said, I will arise, I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So the prodigal had previously exalted himself, which then through prodigal living, it brought him very, very low. And so he humbled himself in his mind to his true estate and said, I'll be a servant. I'll be a servant. And then of course, his father exalted him. Jesus said, he who exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Matthew 23, 12. So it was by way of humility that the prodigal was restored to a place of honor. And then, of course, there's the ultimate example of Christ, who it's difficult to describe from where he began to where he ended up, right? Uh, Being God, the creator, the exalted one of heaven, the object of angelic wonder, humbled himself by coming in the flesh as a man and took on the role of a servant, surrendering all of his rights and prerogatives, who did not come to be served but to serve, And to give his life a ransom for many. So his obedience to the Father, his low reputation, took him to the cross. And what does Paul say at the end of Philippians 2 there in that section? Therefore the Father has highly exalted him. He came low and then the Lord brought him up. The high king of heaven became the lowest servant on earth. So Christ showed us by his example, of course way better than a child, the way of humility, which is the only way into the kingdom. But then what? Once you're in the kingdom, what is the way of the kingdom? Not much different. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So back to the issue of greatness, Jesus points out that the same requirements for admittance into the kingdom are the same qualifications, we might say, for administration in the kingdom. We don't get in by humility and then acquire positions of prominence by arrogance and ambition. In the kingdom, you know, lowness is highness. Small is great, little is big. In this kingdom, the least are the greatest. And no one graduates from humility. Wouldn't that be nice? But then you would be proud that you accomplished that and uh, you'd have to go back to elementary school and start over again. <laughs> Nobody graduates from humility. They just grow deeper in it. The way up is down. Uh, We would say that elevation is by way of humiliation. People confuse. uh, They think that there's a difference between humility and humiliation. Humiliation is just the means to get to humility. (laughs) They're connected. He who aspires to be low will go high. God doesn't honor the arrogant or the ambitious. He resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. If you desire prominence in his kingdom, you will be passed over. Kingdom-mindedness goes like this. Paul says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. We do not like that text. Something inside of us hates it very, very much, right? Right? I mean, we all want to aspire to it. But when boots hit the ground, we use those boots to run the other way. Okay. We do not like to consider others better than ourselves. We like to put ourselves first. But the scriptures, the, the kingdom mind is that it's not about me, it's about others. Each of the disciples wanted to be first, but God insisted that they strive to be last, to put others first, to consider others better than ourselves Paul says, he says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. Now, kindly affectionate, the the idea there is like a mother who for the first time receives her newborn into her arms and shows all preference to that child. Kindly affectionate, philostorgos, It's tender familial affection. This kind of affection shows preference for others. It puts them first. It yields to them. So humility is the prerequisite for both entrance and administration. Too often and too easily, I think we embrace the world's opinion of greatness as the quality that God is seeking. They think God is looking for the most winsome personality, the most eloquent, the best looking. That puts a lot of us out. The most commanding, the most intelligent How many PhDs in this room? No, let's not do that. How many of you don't have PhDs in this room? (laughs) Bunch of losers, man. Who are you anyway? (laughs) But God in the scriptures, he has just so clearly demonstrated, both by way of communication and by those he selects, that what his standard is, the weak and simple. God has chosen the foolish things of the world, the weak things. So if you have a prayer for yourself, what should it be? That you would be weaker, that you would be simpler. It's the humble, so pray for humility. It's for faithfulness, so pray for being loyal. You know, when I I think, and, and I thank God for Pastor Chuck, that for him, as he just was this machine of putting people in ministry and starting works all over the world, he was just always telling guys, just be yourself and be faithful. Don't, don't ever try to be like somebody else, whether it's a, a Hollywood personality or another pastor or whoever. Be yourself and just be faithful. That's, that's how quality is really measured. So it doesn't matter what personality you have, what you look like, what your eloquence is like or whatever. It's, it's, it's about being faithful. That's how Jeremiah was measured because he didn't have any results among people. He had no converts. But he was exalted by God. He was faithful. Amen? Amen. It's faithful. It's measured by those who have faith, who trust him. So pray for greater faith. It's humility. Let's let's move on in the text. Seems to change course a little bit, but Jesus is just, he's not just answering their question. He's using this as a, a broader teaching a, 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 a opportunity. He says, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck, and he would drown in the depths of the sea. (laughs) Jesus is going all mafia. (laughs) Before, initially, it was a matter of converting and becoming as little children, and now it's an issue of receiving and protecting little children. Now, some people believe that Jesus is just using the little child as an illustration of those who are young in the faith. It's possible. Uh, I'm not convinced yet. But not only must we become as little children, we must also receive them and guard their tender faith, whether it's a child or it's a young believer, okay? Because children were considered, you know, it's it's because the children were considered the least valuable class within Jewish society, had no legal rights. It was to show them preference that was a demonstration of humility. You see, we want to associate with not the lowly, as Paul says in Romans 12, We want to associate with those that um, can contribute to us, right? But in the Jewish culture to associate with the lowly, the the least significant, and that can transfer to our culture as well, that demonstrates humility. And in the context here, it's equated with receiving Christ. Of course, the two are not the same, but it would show a grave inconsistency to profess that you've received Christ, that you have the disposition of the kingdom, when you will not receive a child. Children are no minor class in the mind of God or his kingdom. As Jesus will say later, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. They're important to him. So in this one sentence, I believe Jesus reveals the danger that can come out of culture. Let me explain. For what a culture values or disregards can be extremely distasteful to God. The culture did not value little children, the Jewish culture. That should have been the culture elevated them more than any culture on the planet because of the scriptures. For example, in scripture, the unborn, the unborn were granted more protection than an adult male. And for the man who killed the unborn, there was absolutely no protection for him. Exodus 21:22 through 25. See, a manslayer could flee to a city of refuge, but if he killed the unborn, he could be killed on the spot. There was no city for him to run to. It's very interesting. But that Jewish culture in the first century had diminished the value of children, and to this day, the prevailing rabbinical view on abortion is that it is permissible. So tradition has carried over with more authority than the scriptures. So culture quite often permits what God hates, and that is why we do not take moral lessons from our culture, but from the scriptures, always. God will judge the world, not based upon the changing whims of society, but according to to eternal truth that is grounded in his nature that cannot be changed. And because children are so valued in the eyes of God, Jesus is saying, you better protect their faith and be careful not to sow any kind of doubt in their minds. Those who would injure the faith of a child, he basically says, are worthy of the millstone award. Now, as I've mentioned before, there's different kinds of stones used for milling. There's, there's the hand grinding stone, uh, that's one kind, but then there was these, these massive stones. Well, Jesus says, mulos, that's the stationary stone that is upwards of 800 pounds. And it has a nice hole in the middle so that, so that a, a chain can be laced through there and then wore around somebody's neck. <laughs> it would be better off, he says, to have that tied around your neck And you be drowned in the depths of the sea than cause a believing child to sin. So precious in the eyes of God are children. So let me say this. Parents, be ever so cautious of what you expose your children to. You may not be the one teaching them evolution or sowing doubt in their minds about the Bible or the Christian faith. But if you hand them over to those who do, you will be held accountable. You may not be the one exposing them to immoral things on social media, on YouTube, or movies, but if you permit them to entertain such things on those platforms, you will be held accountable for it. I can't think of a more appropriate application of this text. Protect your children. Be very cautious about the influence you permit in their lives. Walk in faith yourself and demand that those who influence your children have the same convictions. Understand? Understand? Because the millstone is there for anybody. Jesus' words are not empty. He goes on, he says, "Woe to the world because of offenses. for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offenses or the offense comes. Have you guys noticed that our world is kind of a like a moral landfield minefield, rather? If you're not mindful, you will step in the wrong place. It seems of late. It really has, that that humanity has become so bored with the old immorality that it's coming up with new versions of it all the time. It's like, that old immorality, that was yesterday. And as Paul says, they become inventors of evil things. And instead of being happy with destroying themselves in private, they become aggressively evangelistic in public. Every objective truth is challenged, and those who hold to any kind of objective morals are demonized. The world, you guys, it's a stumbling block. It's, it, of course, it's been that way since the fall, but it seems like never before to have a unified voice. I guess the last time it would have had a unified voice like it has now would have been the Tower of Babel. Then these things will happen. God has promised they will, but Jesus says, woe to that man by whom the offense comes. So in other words, the church and every believer must be careful that they're not the cause of what Jesus is talking about. But let me... Say this, you have to understand by the word offense, Jesus is not saying woe to those who upset others. Oh, our culture would just love it if that's what Jesus meant. Oh, I'm offended. That was offensive. Everybody's offended. They're not, but they just use that a way to make you feel bad. Okay? I'm not really offended. Jesus doesn't mean upsetting people. If that was what he meant, he would be the biggest hypocrite on the planet, right? He was always offending people in that way. He was making people upset. Couldn't help it. He was there doing all those things that please his father. The message of repentance, the, the message of judgment to come, people don't throw a party when they hear that stuff. They're offended. Jesus says, you hate me because I testify that your deeds are evil. So what did they do? They killed him. Jesus made people upset, but he made people upset for the, the right reasons. Jesus is saying, woe to those who are the reason that someone else falls into sin. Woe to those who entice others to sin. We cannot, we can't be a part of that and be in the kingdom. So Jesus says, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, and he said all this before, but men need to be told things twice. He says, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet. To be cast into the everlasting fire. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. It's bad enough that we have to be on guard for all of the stumbling blocks that are out there. We have to be mindful of ourselves being a stumbling block, right? How many of you guys don't need any help from the world? Yeah. Now, of course, the illustration here is not meant to be executed literally. We, you guys all understand that, right? Apparently you do. You still have all of your limbs and your eyes, okay? If Jesus did mean this literally, we would all be blind amputees. <laughs> it's not our bodies, our limbs that cause us to sin. Jesus has already stated very clearly. It's, it's what's in here. Our hands, our eyes, our feet, they just obey orders. They're instruments of sin, Rather than the cause, we're the culprit. We're responsible, we're accountable. But that being the case, what Jesus is trying to say here is that radical measures are required to get sin out of our lives. Right? That's what he's saying. Desperate sins call for desperate measures. And it's true, if our hands and eyes were the actual cause of our sin, it would be preferable to remove them. Jesus says it would be better to live without them in this life than to burn in hell with them. Because sin is so deadly to the soul, serious measures should be taken to eradicate it. So what are you doing to get sin out? What have you removed from your life that is destroying you? Who have you excluded that is drawing you away from Christ and his word? Now, most often the the necessary measures are the most obvious things. So I'll just try to be obvious. If you're having sex with someone that's not your spouse, well, you know exactly what to do. Remembering that the Holy Spirit says that no fornicator will enter the kingdom of heaven, 1 Corinthians 6. Well, pastor, I'm saved. I was baptized. I don't care. The Holy Spirit said, no one practicing these things enters the kingdom of heaven. If you're using a substance that alters your state of consciousness, limits your ability to think with sobriety, or erodes your self-control, you know what needs to be done. Remembering that the scripture says that no drunkard will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, of course, I know when I say drunkard, our minds immediately turn to alcohol as the problem. But that's like saying that porn is only in motion picture. Alcohol is just one way to accomplish the same end. It's the result that is the issue. When a substance brings us to a place, as the scriptures say, dissipation, we've lost sobriety. We're high, we're stoned, we're wasted, we're baked. Everybody knows what I'm talking about, right? Do I need to use some other euphemisms? Dissipation speaks of the loss of restraint, self-control, especially in the context of moral things. I don't know how many people I've known that did things, said things, or thought things they would not have if they weren't drunk or high. Well, I'll have you know, Pastor Ben, it's all legal these days and so is murdering children in the womb. So what's your point? I'll have you know that not everything that is legal is moral, and on the day of judgment, God will not consult the laws of Washington or the United States when he judges. Every form of immorality, listen, in America today that is legal, was legal in the Roman Empire when the New Testament was written. You could have sex with whoever you wanted, whether it was a man or a woman, someone of the same sex, a slave, or even a child. You could kill your babies in or out of the womb. You could even identify as the opposite gender. You could put whatever substance in your body that you wanted, and if you wanted all of that on steroids, you could go to Corinth, just as people go to Amsterdam today. One philosopher said, the journey to Corinth is not for every man. (laughs) All these things were legal when the Holy Spirit inspired the New Testament. And he has never stopped condemning them. Just because America legalizes it or a culture permits it does not make the practice acceptable to God. As believers, we belong to a different community whose king is Christ. His word sets the tone. It, is, it develops the culture, the moral boundaries, and the obligations. We're in this world, but we are not to be of it, Jesus said. James said, "Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, just like the prophets, James is using some terms here that doesn't mean, like here, adulterers and adulteresses. It's not referring to actual adultery, but to any kind of unfaithfulness to God and his word. Friendship with the world, participating in its depravity, puts you at odds with God. Pastor Ben, why are you being so harsh? I'm not being harsh, it's in the text. In four verses, Jesus has promised the Millstone Award. He's pronounced two woes and threatened his audience with everlasting fire and hellfire. Get off my back. (laughs) When Jesus began, it was an issue of prerequisite for entering the kingdom. Then it was for greatness in the kingdom. And now it regards the holiness and purity of its citizens. Jesus is communicating the standards for his people, not being harsh. The most loving thing I can do for anyone entangled in sin is to warn them of danger. And if you plan to avoid that danger, you must repent. You must turn to God and you must live according to his word. You must, as Jesus says, take radical measures to be free before it's too late. You must cut away, you must distance yourself From everything that entices you, you must flee from wrath, lest you get caught up in it. As the old divines would say, you must hide yourself in the wounds of Christ, who was punished in your place. Because if he does not take your place in judgment, you will find yourself in judgment. Did I mention repentance? If you don't, justice will call for your blood. The time is short. James says the judge is standing at the door, and when he enters the room and takes his seat and calls the court to order, scriptures say, at that moment, it's too late. So as Jesus is saying here, it's time to humble yourself, to depart from sin. And if you do, he will cleanse you and he will grant you entrance into his kingdom. Let's pray. Would you stand with me?